0: to United and Resilient, a podcast designed to help heal and support the El Paso community. Hello, I'm your host, Mariana Sierra, Outreach Coordinator for the El Paso United Family Resiliency Center, a program of United Way of El Paso County. We are dedicated to serve those who were impacted directly or indirectly by August 3rd. Join us on the journey to long-term recovery, as we have honest conversations with local leaders, mental health specialists, and fellow El Pasoans who share their stories and expertise. We feature topics that influence and impact the vitality and resilience of our community. We are El Paso United, and together we heal. Juntos Sanamos. Listener, before we begin, a note of warning. The topic we're about to explore contains a mention of the mass casualty event and a description of the events that unfolded thereafter. This episode may not be suitable for everyone. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of United and Resilient. Thank you so much for being here today. At the FRC, we recognize the importance of setting the standards now to prepare for possible future disasters. As part of our long-term goals, the FRC works towards creating partnerships and sharing experiences that can build capacity in other communities responder to a similar situation. In this episode, we'll have a very honest conversation with Ryan Logan, Director for Recovery Services at the American Red Cross. We'll discuss lessons learned from our border region and how we can find healing by providing support and guidance to other communities. Ryan, we're super excited to have you as a guest today. Welcome to United and Resilient.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to join and um, look forward to to talking with you all.
0: Ryan, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and experience and um, specialties? And what is it that you do for the American Red Cross?
1: Sure. So I'm the director of recovery services for the American Red Cross, kind of at our national headquarters level. So my primary role um, is uh, working with a team that manages really all of our financial assistance programs uh, that we provide to individuals impacted by disasters, whether it be the single family fires that we respond to, you know, 65,000 times a year um, or the larger scale disasters. The hurricanes, the wildfires, um, and then also um, to really just any other disaster that impacts the community, such as you know a mass casualty event, uh, a, a shooting event, uh, a plane crash, things of that nature. Um, you know, I've been with the organization for fifteen years, um, and really have had the opportunity uh, to. Respond to numerous disasters, large and small, um, and you know here since 2016, primarily have spent a lot of time supporting communities that have been impacted um, by you know mass casualty um, shooting type events, such as El Paso. Um, you know, I first started with the Pulse shooting in Orlando, and then also with the shooting in Las Vegas, Parkland. Um, and again, most recently working with your great community um after their tragedy on August third.
0: Great, thank you so much. and yes, um. I was very, when, when when we first initially met, I was very intrigued on all the insight that you had um, when August happened here in our community. So can you briefly explain the role that American Red Cross had specifically regarding to our community and the role that you had during this day?
1: Sure. So, you know, the Red Cross, we have the unique responsibility um, that when the national transportation safety board uh created the aviation um incident legislation in 1996 that really mandated how they would respond as well as how the airlines and other um transportation Organizations would respond to sort of you know, plane crashes, large bus crashes, train accidents, that sort of thing. One of the things that was a part of that legislation was that the American Red Cross would serve as the primary organization responsible for family assistance centers following an event of that nature. Um, and so since 1996, the Red Cross has really played a critical role in responding to that and, and really developed really a lot of subject matter expertise um, around how to assist um, communities impacted by those types of events, um, specifically around the Family Assistance Center, so really how to ensure that we were providing assistance to those you know, who had lost loved ones, who had loved ones that were injured from some sort of event like that, um, how to work with other partners, really take care of holistically the needs of those individuals. And so, you know, that really became the basis for how we now respond to, sadly, um, what is, you know, somewhat of a growing epidemic in this country with the mass shootings. And so really, we just slightly tailored kind of what our normal response would be for an aviation incident, for example, um, how we could kind of use that experience that we had um, and really tending to those families to also come into communities and help them assist families impacted by, you know, an event such as a shooting. And so sadly, you know, we've got probably outside of maybe some law enforcement such as the FBI or even the NTSB, probably the most experienced in dealing with mass casualty events um, and really how we can come into a community and really provide Again, that holistic wraparound support to those individuals um, impact either directly or could the community at large impacted indirectly. And so, you know, for these mass shooting type events, you know, one of the primary things that we're focused on is really making sure that the families of the victims, whether, again, deceased or injured, really have access to the necessary services that they need to begin to start to move forward in what will be their new normal, right? So, you know, providing them with access to, you know, crime compensation, providing them access to mental health, um, you know, spiritual care, also access to any sort of uh, potential funding that they may not have access to as a result to any injuries. Um, Because, again, if you're, you know, in an area where you may be your, your insurance doesn't cover you because you're out of the state boundary. Right. So, you know, you were injured in an event and you're getting discharged from the hospital and you need some sort of adaptive technology, whether that be like a wheelchair, a walker, or even just need prescription medications. If you don't have the access to funds to just pay for that, um, you know, again, that's kind of where we step in and we can provide some of that assistance. Um, but again, also too, just kind of the Red Cross has a large, large network of partners, whether they be at the community level, the corporate level, that we really also tap into those networks to, again, look holistically um, at what are the needs of the individuals impacted by the event and what partners can we bring to bear um, to ensure that, even again, that those individuals really can take those next steps, whether it be some of our partners with uh, travel or hospitality, right? So if individuals need assistance in, you know, flying from one part of the country or even one part of the world to where the event occurred, you know, we have a large network that we can tap into to bring those resources to bear so that we're able to get those family members brought to the location so that they can reunite or to handle the business, you know, if they've had someone that's been deceased. So really, we look at it kind of as a holistic approach to how can we really start to identify what are the needs of the individuals that were directly impacted as well as indirectly impacted. But then another big part of that is also looking at how can we really work with the community to also focus on their community resilience, you know, thinking about you know, what's next. Because, again, as we've seen, and hopefully in most of these communities, a mass casualty incident is a one-time event, right? And so, you know, for most cities, this is their first rodeo with any of this. And so, you know, as with anything, if it's your first time, you really don't know what to expect other than what's right in front of you at the time. And so we're able to bring... And the resources to really not only think about, okay, how do you handle what's right now, but also to begin to think about, you know, what's next and, you know, start to begin thinking five steps ahead. um, So that again, there's really no lapse in assistance to the individuals, but also to the community at large.
0: Right. And, ryan one of the things that I was, um, that I really liked in our previous discussion is that you were impacted by our community response and how our community, well, basically responded to August 3rd. So I wanted to ask you, what were some of the things that were that impacted you, if you can share with
2: our audience?
1: Yeah, sure. So I think one of the primary things was the fact that El Paso had already begun to think about resiliency and community resiliency, right? You're one of the few cities in the country that actually has a standalone community resiliency officer for the county. Um, and so, you know, knowing that there is this deliberate, intentional focus on, you know, how do you, as a community, how do we think about becoming more resilient? Um, And, you know, initially, I I don't believe that position was thinking about resiliency in the same light that we're talking about it today. Um, You know, they were thinking more about, you know, how do you build, you know, community infrastructure that makes a more resilient community? You know, how do we make sure that we're able to still operate? and grow and continue to thrive as a community when something happens. Um, Whether it be, you know, mother nature, um, whether it just be some sort of, you know, economic issue, you know, you guys have been on the front lines for several years now of very unique situations that the majority of the country has no experience with, whether it be issues on the border, right. Which really create a really unique circumstance for you all. but again, thinking about as a community, how do y'all become more resilient when you're faced with those issues? Um, you know, again, you guys have been on the front lines, unfortunately, with the COVID epidemic. Um, and so, you know, how do you think about you know knowing that you guys are El Paso, just the way you are geographically, you're very much kind of like an island into yourselves, right? You know, the closest large community is literally six hours away. Um, And so, you know, how do you focus on taking care of of, of yourselves and your community when you know that the resources aren't going to be able to get to you necessarily in a matter of minutes, right? Um, I think that really struck me in the fact that you guys were already, as a community, really being progressive in your thought about, you know, how do we, with whatever situation may present itself in this community, how do we think about making El Paso just more resilient so that when stuff does happen, we're able to keep moving, keep growing, keep thriving. Um, I think the second thing that really struck me is again, really just the unique nature and the strong level of
3: community engagement
1: and just literally just the strong community that you guys have um, you know I've seen it in in several places around the country but you guys just had a really strong sense of community where you know folks really stepped up really were focused on how to take care of each other um, folks that had never met before or really had never been engaged before but really were willing to just kind of step up and fill the needs um of of others um and to me i think that speaks volumes um to kind of the leadership um of your community and really just the tone and tenor that that has where you know it really is about neighbor helping neighbor and i think a lot of that may be again as the result of kind of just your geographic isolation to some degree, is you've got, you've, you've always kind of learned to be self reliant and really lean on one another. Um, and I think, you know, if there is a silver lining to these types of events, I think that's some of the stuff that really shows itself, um, is you really do see the best of humanity when things like this happen. And I think, you know, seeing your community step up, but also not just your own community, but again, just this whole bilateral, lateral national, geographic uh, connection that you guys have with, like, your neighbors across the border, right? right? Um, how it really isn't just, you know, U.S.-centric, but you guys really do depend on your neighbors across the border and vice versa, and so it just really creates this really unique um, dynamic that I've never seen, but it was really awesome to see just how close of a tie there was between the two. Um, and really folks didn't see themselves as, you know, I'm from the United States or I'm from Mexico. Like it was just, everybody was individuals. And I think that sort of spirit is really, really cool. Um, so I think, you know, a couple of those two things struck me, but I also feel like, you know, you guys have really strong Um, leadership. And I think that was one of the things that also really resonated was there were strong folks in positions who were really thinking two steps ahead, but also were thinking with true compassion. And really, it wasn't about just thinking about the now, but really, how can we parlay this into something more? Um, which is something that I find really remarkable. Um, again, hats off to your leaders, both at the community level as well as those you know, kind of elected um, or those informal community leaders, right? It was really just, to me, really cool to see when we had that first meeting of community organizations about you know, what's next, just the level of engagement, the, the lack of ego. Which can tend to find itself in any situation, none of that was in place. It was all about how do we take care of the people that have been impacted, and then also how do we take care of our community, and how do we do it in a way that just doesn't happen right this minute, but let's do it not fast, but let's do it right um and I think that really spoke to me. Um, Again, just uh, about the level of dedication that folks have in that community about really looking out for each other um, and really wanting to make the best impact on folks' lives.
0: Right. I think one of the biggest things, and I agree with you, that I saw it was not about, oh, my name is on it or my organization is on it. It was really about the people and what we represent. And I I love that you share that with our audience because I really want people to feel proud of that uniqueness that El Paso and Ciudad Juarez is. Um, we really are sister cities. And I think and I always like to say from people who are outside this border is you know what, I can explain to you that you can be in five minutes, you can be in another country, and then <laughs> you can be back to another country in another five. But um, I can explain that so many times, but you really understand what we're all about once you step inside. Um, once you're here, once you see our people, what we're all about. And I, I think it's really important for people for, for our community members to recognize that, to feel proud about that, that, you know, this was something that happened to us, right? And it was very unfortunate and we're healing together, but it definitely doesn't represent us. What represents us is what you saw that day and that unity and that collaboration. And I, I love that. Thank you for sharing that with us. And, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to discuss with you, and I mentioned this right now, is about community resilience. Um, I don't know if I'm the only one, but, you know, since the pandemic, I've seen this word around in social media and, in ads and, you know, everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And I'm like, well, okay, so I'm so intrigued by what is community resilience. So I want to ask you, Ryan, to you, what is community resilience? How would you define this term?
1: Yeah, I I, I like you. It's it's become quite the the buzzword of late, Um, and you know, for me, I really see community community resilience. Really, simply is how do we continue to
3: continue? How do we continue to move forward, thrive, and grow even when? we have some large hurdles that we weren't really prepared for fall into that path.
1: Um, You know, it's, you know, in the business sector, they look at it as, you know, business continuity, right? So how do, prime example, how do we in this pandemic, how do businesses continue to move forward when, you know, all of their workforce is used to working together in an office setting or in a warehouse or whatever. How do we continue to make our business work when we can't do that? Um, I see that same sort of thing with community resilience. It's really about, you know, how do we focus on the people, the industry, everything that really makes up a community? How do we continue to, to go on? Right. And not just traditionally just go on, but ideally you want to go on better. Right. You want to really come out of this for the better. Right. Um, And so, you know, I look at community resiliency, especially on kind of the disaster side. We look at this, you know, really focused on how do we take care of the folks psychologically? Um, which is critical, especially to events like this, right? Right. Folks really, it's really interesting just, you know, when certain people get impacted by these events, right? It could be, you know, obviously there's people that are literally impacted at the moment. Um, you know, people that lose loved ones or have folks that are injured as a result of something like that, they literally feel that psychological impact immediately, Then there are other folks that, you know, are in the community that weren't there, but they start to feel something manifest because they feel like their community was attacked, right? And so that may manifest, you know, days, weeks, months, years later. Um, You know, so it's really focusing on, again, like, how do you take whatever event or issue that's kind of presented itself to you, you how do you push through that? How do you adapt? Um, And really, how do you embrace what really might be your new normal? And I know that's another term that's thrown around, but I think (laughs) that's, that's the thing that is really important is that, you know, events change how people and communities react moving forward you know, if we take the example of the pandemic, right? Like, I think we're never going to go back to the way life was before. I think as a country, we'll, we'll adapt a new normal. Face mask may be something that's a part of our new normal
2: <laughs>
1: moving forward, right? Um, and, you know, you'll see businesses and industries really realize, well, hey, I might not need to bring everybody into an office setting every day because, We've learned that people can work remotely, right? And you'll just—I think there's things that shape the future of communities. And I think that whole resiliency piece is really how do you take what's happened and how do you think about how you, as a community, take that and really do move forward in a positive way, where the community can thrive, um, where folks are able to again, be a little bit stronger because the next time something happens, you're going to be a little bit more prepared for it. You know, kind of using the example of the psychological impact, right? You know, one of the things that, uh, that we teach, um, in communities across the country is psychological first aid. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that we just offer when a disaster happens. It's something that we offer in communities during, you know, sunshiny skies and because what we want folks to do is really know how to kind of take care of themselves when something does happen um, because you know in most communities especially on natural disasters it's not a matter of like if but when you're going to be impacted by something and so you know knowing what the impact of that disaster may be on you but then also understanding how to cope with that how to recognize the signs of it in yourself or your family members or your children, really to develop kind of those skills necessary. So when something does happen, it doesn't have quite the impact that it may in a negative way. Um, And so I think that again, to me, is all part of that community resiliency. It's really, how do we really start
3: to provide the resources um,
1: and, Access to certain services or whatever that may be. So when something does happen, yeah, it's going to be somewhat of a step back or a hurdle. But we're going to be able to move through it, and we're going to come out better on the other side for it.
0: Right. And one of the things that you mentioned earlier, Ryan, is that you know our community is so unique in that in the fact that we have gone through, you know, quite quite the scenarios. First, we have You know this community where you know it's an immigrant community and we had that immigrant influx and then we had august third and then we had the pandemic (laughs) and um it was one of the you know hot spots at some point Mm -hmm. so it feels like you know i know a lot of community members are feeling like it's one thing after another thing after another thing um so i wonder to 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 your perspective How can us as El Pasoans, as cuarenses how can we build resilience even though like, you know, all of the things, all of these things are are happening and it feels that we cannot heal properly from one thing and then another thing happens.
1: And I think it's, (laughs) I I, I hate to sound probably like uh, a little bit of a negative Nancy here, but I think, unfortunately, I think that's gonna be and I use the phrase new normal, I think communities are gonna really start to see and feel that, right? I think, you know, I I I was talking to a colleague just last week from Louisiana, right? And this past year, they were hit with one hurricane after another hurricane after another hurricane, right? So as soon as you got the shingles on the first storm replaced, another one came along and blew them all off, right? And so, it's tough, um, but I don't sadly see that changing too much, especially as it results to, you know kind of the mother nature stuff, and you know, the pandemic stuff. It's scary, right? You know we we don't know what the next thing holds. Um, but I think the biggest piece for me is around really how do you build a strong network within your community that actually focuses on the people, right? So I think one, it's knowing what are the resources that are available to you in your community. Um, also having those community resources really being nimble and flexible. Um, because I think that's one of the things that, you know, we talked about a little bit before you know, when we had that first meeting of community organizations to really think about the next steps um, for El Paso after the shooting, it wasn't about, well, my agency only does A, B, and C, right? And that's all we can do. It was what are what are the needs, and how can my
3: agency basically shift its focus,
1: expand its mission, really do what needs to be done in order to take care of the people. And I think that to me is really one of the most important pieces of community resiliency is, you know, one, kind of doing that threat assessment, if you will. And that seems to be kind of like a really strong word, but really thinking about, you know, we see this in emergency management all the time, right? I'm sure chief Rodriguez on a notebook in his office has literally a list of here that. 10 most likely bad things that are going to happen in El Paso that we need to plan for. Right. And there's those 10, but then I'm sure he probably didn't have a pandemic on that list. (laughs) Probably didn't really have an event like August 3rd on that list. Right. Like he knows that y'all have flooding. He knows that y'all have, you know, weather, whatever, but it's, it's really kind of, identifying what are all these possible things that can happen. And as a result of that, you know, what are some of the the issues that we think will arise for our community as a result of that? And then how can we start to identify the best ways to meet those needs when they do happen? Um, and, again, I think a lot of that really comes down to, one, again, knowing what resources you have in your backyard. Knowing the people in your community and really what their needs are on a on a regular day, right in most communities,
2: mm-hmm.
1: we know people are basically living paycheck to paycheck right and so it's not like folks have a lot of expendable income. Research shows that most folks don't have an additional four hundred dollars in their account to pay for something if something unexpectedly happens, right so you know like Fiscal resources is always going to be something that you, you may need. Um, and so really starting to think through, you know, what, what are those potential scenarios that may present themselves in our community and who might be the best folks to really step up and
3: to assist. Um, but also, again, thinking
1: holistically, you know, what other impacts? You know, I think we can think about the tangible stuff You know, we can think about, you know, how you repair infrastructure, how
3: you rebuild homes, but it's that
1: internal psychological piece, the toll that that has on individuals. And I think that's what we're seeing across the board, across the country right now is, you know, just the impact that these events have on people, you know, the more and more they go through it, you know. Yeah, you may can get a little bit more accustomed to it, and you get a, a you can kind of navigate it. But then at some point you hit a wall, right? Yeah. Um, and you know what are the resources that we have available to those folks? Um, you know, how do we expand the mental health capability in a community to really make sure that people are recognizing the signs? in themselves that they're you know potentially going into some level of depression right they haven't been able to leave their homes for almost a year haven't been able to see their grandmother in a year you know they've had family members that have died alone right because they couldn't be by their side during covid so all of that does take a a true impact on a person and i think Mm -hmm. it's you know how do we bring the resources to bear to those individuals that may not even know that they need it? But, you know, we know, the community knows that they're starting to see where folks need these things, and we as a community need to bring that to bear.
3: Um, because I think, you know, one
1: of the things that we've learned, obviously, through, you know, especially kind of around the, the mass casualty type events
3: Is that, you know, a lot of times people
1: don't know what they don't know. Mm -hmm. They don't know that potentially in a couple of weeks or in a couple of months or in a couple of years, some of these issues, they manifest themselves, right? So it's about that public education awareness, really making the services available to folks, even though they may not know they need it now. Getting it out there to them, so when it does manifest, they've already got the tools on how to equip themselves and how to deal with it is really important. And so I think for me, it's really just
3: really thinking about what is what is the
1: nature, what is the what are what is that sense that you're getting from the community, um, and really starting to identify. Here are some of the trends that we're seeing, and you know how can we start to Bring resources to bear. Again, people may not be presenting and stepping up and saying, Hey, I need X. Right. But again, if you proactively bring that resource to bear and let folks know that resource is there, I think you'll be surprised at the number of people that really start to raise their hand and say, Hey, I do need that. I didn't realize I needed it, but I really do need it. And it's great to know that's there. Um, and so I think for me, that's really kind of how we look at working with communities to kind of build that resiliency framework um, to some degree.
2: Right.
0: And that's one of the main reasons we have this podcast, right? Because we want to provide the education, the awareness, the tools that maybe uh, someone out there listening is, you know what, maybe counseling right now is not for me. Maybe non-traditional therapy is not for me right now but at least they're aware that these resources are available for them and that we are here healing together as a community. This is United and Resilient. We'll be right back.
4: Hello, I'm Fabiola Echoberry. I'm a licensed professional counselor and also president of trauma uh, and resilience in the Berlin Institute. And I uh, was also part of the August 3rd. I happened to be sitting in the Corner Bakery, planning a meeting that I was gonna set because I wanna become a network that if anything happened in El Paso, we would be ready as counselors or professionals, ready to do these uh, wonderful protocols that we have to assist with something traumatic. But when, as I'm sitting there and I hear word of you know the, the shooting, you know, I, I'm, this came sooner than later. I was hoping we would never have to use these protocols here in El Paso, but I'm very pleased that, that at least we, at this point, were ready to go. And I was part of, um, I went home, a colleague called me and said, hey Fabi, she's a, she works for the Emergence Health Network, and she's part of the crisis uh, intervention team that rides with police officers, so they were on scene quickly. She called me, my my counselors are gonna be burned out really quick, so we need to, I need you, is there any way that you can put out that, you know, Anybody who wants to help out this week will join us tomorrow at ten o'clock at the local mental health authority. So I put that email out to everybody. We had sixty-one colleagues show up. So I'm really proud that we had sixty-one of our colleagues, even as far as Las Cruces, show up. And we were able to assist that week and many weeks following pro bono doing groups and 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 classes and doing I took on clients here at my at my private practice and worked at Emergence Health Network. So we were able to help out and we were happy to help out. Also two weeks later, we were able to get help from Dr. Jaredo, uh Ignacio Jaredo, a psychologist from Mexico on these protocols that help for acute uh, stress stabilization for something that might've just happened. So we were able to do three days of groups all day. People just walked in, were able to process the event, come back if they wanted to the next day. And we were we did that for, for three days. And it was really helpful. We had from firemen, we had some people that were there. So they were able to come, even as far as some people came as far as Juarez to those groups. So we were happy that we were able to provide this. And then we did another follow-up groups on three months after. So that was great that we were able to assist the community. I'm also, I'm happy that because of what my organization's been doing the last three years in preparing and making this a more trauma-informed care community, we were able to train therapists. And at this point, we have over 200 therapists that are trained in what's called EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy which is uh, therapy, it's not so much talk, it's more using bilateral stimulation to help the brain finish processing the disturbance and the events. When something happens, it gets tied with what we see, what we hear, smell, all the senses, negative cognition, and that's how it gets stored. EMDR helps to, to bring up that memory, help digest the disturbance, and give it and reframe it to a new meeting. so it's more adaptive. Um, So we were pleased that we can provide this here. And there's still a lot of colleagues that are providing therapy and EMDR. So this is something that I really am glad that we were able to bring to our community because with this therapy, we were able to be prepared for something like this and ready for it. I'm glad that we had that at that point. So in a roundabout way, I say, we were preparing for this in the last three years and we had the capability of helping our community. So I really encourage people that if they're, keep going to therapy if you're in therapy, if you're not in therapy, you might wanna consider going to therapy, but try to look up somebody that has an evidence-based for trauma. And EMDR is one of those that I encourage people to to see. Another thing that I also encourage people, if you're already in therapy, maybe also adding some mindfulness-based stress reduction course, and right now they're doing it online and it's a lot of yoga and you know, just breathing. It's just wonderful to be very in the here and now because with, with trauma, we tend to go to the past and we tend to go to the future and we just need to be in the present most of the time. And that's a wonderful way to be very aware of your body and what you're feeling and thinking without judging, just bringing yourself gently back to the here and now and all these wonderful techniques that that mindfulness class can help you. So those are just some things. Other things that we know that can help is, you know, other things that you enjoy, you need to do a lot of self-care. A lot. Of, this is a time to do a lot of self-care and and just not judging. We live so, you know, of things that we feel that we should be doing and we must be doing. The only thing we gotta do is breathe and stay in the moment and just be kind to ourselves. That's the only thing I wanna say. We gotta remember to be kind to ourselves, especially when you've been through something so, Uh, traumatic, it's normal to be very judgmental and harsh, and you have all this negative, shoulda, woulda, coulda thinking. And so we just gotta learn that, no, I did the best I could with the bad situation I was in, or what the experiences that I've had. So all the things that you're feeling and all the things that you're noticing, that's normal for the bad thing that you've been through or bad things that you've been through. So just be kind to yourself and no judgment, just observe and just be kind to yourself.
0: One of the things that I also wanted to ask you, Ryan, um, one of the things that we think about as the FRC, as a family resiliency center is how can we, how can we, share our knowledge to other communities how can we help other communities build resilience for example communities like el paso las vegas orlando that are fortunately worked to something similar how can we provide the frameworks now for obviously unwanted but possible future disasters how can we all collaborate together
3: so i think it it's easy but it's
1: tough and and this is where i'm going with that so you know you would think that um most communities having kind of seen the rise of these types of events you know over the past you know 10 or so years um would really
3: make planning for such an event priority
1: in their community and i think we've seen that we've seen Tons of planning as it relates to the law enforcement, emergency management, um, EMS, hospitals, all of that have really done a really great job at thinking about, you know, when something like this happens, how they're going to respond, right? How they're going to neutralize the threat, how they're going to handle the the, the immediate, um, how they're going to, you know, handle the surge in the hospital. But so that's where the
3: planning has stopped. Um, and I think where where communities like yourselves and, and those
1: that have been impacted by these events really can can really help out and share their knowledge and expertise is really, you know, start start in those immediate communities where you have the most impact. Um, and really say, Hey, look, you guys have done a great job of planning for you know an active shooter in ex community, but have you thought about the hard part, the next step, right the taking care of the people, the taking care of the community, all of that stuff that really no planning really takes place um, you know I think it's we did see right after El Paso where You know, there was the shooting up in the Odessa area where, you know, you guys did reach out and say, hey, you know, we just went through this a few weeks ago. Um, We're here to support and help
3: you.
2: Um,
1: Now, whether or not communities are willing to accept that, you know, that's on them. Um, But I think it's really about documenting what you guys have done and learned. And then, you know, reaching out to those communities when it does happen, you know, I think that's one of the things that we've seen, you know,
3: after the pulse shooting, when we
1: had the event in Las Vegas, Mm -hmm. you know, a team that I worked with from the city of Orlando actually came to Vegas to help provide them with their experience. Right. And I've seen that kind of trickle. The other events where you know in El Paso we had folks from these sister communities y'all had the folks from Las Vegas come and provide support so I think you know you sadly have joined kind of this alumni if you will yeah. that you know is able to provide that information when it happens I think that's the easy part
3: I think the hard part is getting folks
1: to take the actions now in their communities to mm-hmm. plan for it. Um, and like I said, you know, I've been in meetings, you know, we hosted the Super Bowl in Atlanta a couple of years ago. And I remember going to those planning meetings and it was all about, you know, if something happens at the stadium, what they're going to do, how they're going to handle it. And I kept raising my hand and saying, okay, that's great. But then what? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, like what's yeah. how? What are we thinking about? What's next? You know, what are we thinking about a family assistance center? What are we thinking about? You know, who's going to take the lead on you know mental health in the community and but and on and on and on and on. Um, and that's where the folks didn't have the answers. Um, and that's the tough part um, because it's really dealing with the people and again that holistic approach to the folks. Um, and so, you know, I think you know one of the things that Um, I was fortunate enough to attend with, you know, Rodriguez with your Merchant Management and Fire Department.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Last year, um, the Federal Merchant Management Agency pulled together a group of stakeholders really to kind of have this type of a conversation is how do we, as, you know, a country, how do we really start to help communities Plan for these types of events, um, and what does that look like? Um, and so you know just getting some initial stakeholders around the table for the first time ever to start to have that conversation, I think is a step in the right direction. you know, I know for me and for my organization, you know we're constantly kind of throwing this in folks' face that again it's it's not enough to just stop at you know once the the thing goes, boom, how you handle it. But again, what's next? What does that recovery look like? You know? And I think that's the challenging part is getting folks to realize that, you know, it, it, it's again, not a matter of if, but a matter of when for many, many communities across the country. And I think you, what you guys are doing is leaps and bounds ahead um, of other communities. Right. I mean, just your podcast alone. And really trying to do the public outreach to folks, I think, is a a huge start. I think, you know, it really is just going to take us kind of knocking on a lot of doors and continuing to raise the issue um, to get communities to see that this is really, really important. And, you know, if you are able to, God forbid, have something like this happen in your community, if you have somewhat of a semblance of a plan it makes those first 48, 72 weeks after an event, it makes such a big difference Um, just because it does take a lot of some of that initial pressure off of folks about what they need to do, right? It provides Mm -hmm. that that initial direction. Um, And I think it's also great for, you know, engaging those community organizations, right? Like when we right. talk about community resiliency as a whole, like I mentioned before, you know, one of the things that's really important is just knowing who's doing what in your community on a daily basis, right? And when something happens, how can you possibly go to them and say, all right, we got this issue? Is there something y'all can do to help us navigate through this, right? And right. a lot of times in communities, especially in government, you know, we kind of get a little bit myopic and in, in kind of how we look at things. Sometimes government folks don't really know what a lot of their nonprofit community is doing there, right? And what resources they really have to bring to bear. And it requires just bringing them to the table to have that conversation. And so, you know, for me, I think, you know, having the ability to to reach out through your your network, right? You know, everybody kind of has some sort of level of hierarchy, right? You guys are very close partners with United Way. Mm -hmm. And so there are United Ways all across this country, right? So your United Way leadership has a great platform to go to their United Way colleagues around the country to say, hey guys, let's talk to you all about what we've learned and what we would share with y'all as to when something happens in your community, here's some of the things that y'all need to initially just start out with, right?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Y'all have done a lot of great work with the foundation. So again all those foundations talk to one another. They have a network. So using that network to say, okay, well, you know, community foundation X, we're going to bring post-conference calls, Zoom, webinar, whatever. Let's talk to all these other community foundations across the country about what we learned going through this and what they need to be potentially anticipating if something like this were to happen in their community, right? Um, You know, emergency management is doing that. Um, You know, I know I've been present at several presentations that, you know, Chief Rodriguez has done highlighting lessons learned and what they, the emergency management community, can do better um, and really learn from. So I think it's really kind of utilizing all the networks that we kind of have our spheres of influence and really just trying to grow with that way. I think it's going to be the most probably impactful Mm -hmm. um, way to actually see um, really kind of the, the message get promulgated out there to other communities. But, you know, I'm always a fan. If there's any opportunity, you know, conventions, conferences, whatever mm-hmm. you can do uh, to get yourself on the agenda to talk about things. Yeah. I'm always about it. So
0: Yeah. And I would add, Ryan, I think one of the things that really impacted me as I came in into this role at the FRC was, um those meetings that we had with community members where we just had an honest conversation with them and listened to their needs and recognized the uniqueness of each individual in that meeting sitting in that chair the uniqueness of their needs and the the diversity of the needs that there were so i think that's one of my biggest takeaways as far as like how our community responded Um, And actually you answered my next question about how nonprofit organizations can collaborate with each other. And, uh, but now I think one of the things that I've learned also is that there's healing in taking action as well. And I guess that's just how I work. I know it's not the case for everyone. Everyone heals in different ways. Um, But for me is, really taking action, right? So when this happened in my community, I wanted to help as much as possible. And I know there's some individuals out there that can identify with with what I'm saying right now, that they want to take action. They want to heal by taking action. So what would you say to those community members that want to be involved, that maybe they're not part of a nonprofit organization, or they're just like, you know, individuals in the community that want to be prepared, that want to be talking about community resilience, What would you say to those community members that want to promote community resilience from where they are right now?
1: So I think the first thing I would say is get involved now before something happens. Right. So whether that, you know, signing up to take a course in psychological first aid um, or, you know, identifying, you know, a nonprofit that you connect with their mission, right? Like take the steps now, don't necessarily wait for something to happen. But I do know that, you know, oftentimes something does happen, does have to happen before folks kind of feel the need. Um, so I think, you know, I would just encourage folks if you have kind of that something kind of in you right now that's like, Hmm, I have an interest in this, but don't really know, take action on it now. Um, Get involved, you know, learn what you can. Um, I think the second thing around taking action is I know when something happens, that is the first initial impact everybody has is I want to do something. Mm -hmm. But I would just encourage folks just to take a pause and find out really what's needed before taking action. Because one of the things that? that we see is
3: all of these folks with the best of intentions
1: can oftentimes overwhelm the situation and mm-hmm. kind of create a little second disaster within itself, right? You know, I think about any time there's a disaster, people feel the need to clean out their clothes and take it and donate it to all these people that have been impacted, right? Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I have I have yet to work a disaster where, you know, we just don't see a plethora of, you know, I don't need a prom dress <laughs> in the middle of a hurricane, right? You know, like, wait, wait, just like take a beat, give folks a minute to really assess what's mm-hmm. the need. And then help meet that need and I think that's again people's just innate action is to, I'm gonna do something and I know people need paper towels so I'm just gonna take a ton of paper towels to X right like again everybody has that same mentality you're gonna have more paper towels than you're ever gonna need or use right so I think it's really thinking about once something does happen how to utilize that passion in the to get engaged in the right way um, again We've seen when things like this, especially these mass casualty events happen, everybody that has any sort of credentialing around mental health or psychiatry, psychology, all of those folks step forward and say, I'm here. Or they will inundate uh, a reception center saying, I want to do something. And that's super appreciative. But at the same time, it's like, one, we have to vet all of you folks. You know, are all your certifications still valid? You know, are you trauma-informed? It's very different, you know, than someone that's just a psychiatrist. Like, there's just a lot, right? So, it's again, if you think you may have an interest in something happening, you know, God forbid, in a community, like, kind of take the steps now so when it does happen, you're already kind of associated with an organization that Mm -hmm. will step in and support that, right? But I do think it's just really important that, you know, when people do want to involve, get involved, everything is, and I would never discourage anybody from stepping up to do anything. I would just really encourage folks to just take a beat, wait for the community, government, whomever that's kind of waiting and running the response to say, hey, community, we have this need, right? Mm -hmm. And then when that need is presented, then if you feel like that's a need that you can meet, then you step up um to support because what we don't want to do is just create or exacerbate an already bad situation with people wanting to do the best and wanting to really help but really it hinder the operation um so i think for me that would be the first thing but i think you know right now i would just really encourage people to To start getting engaged and volunteering where they can with an organization that really feels like it's something they connect with. Because as we've both alluded to, when we bring all those organizations together to say, okay, guys, how do we Mm -hmm. move forward as a community? Mm -hmm. All of those organizations, to some degree, are represented at that table. And again, that's going to be when it's like, okay, we're going to step up and support this. And that organization is going to go back to their volunteer base for those that support it and say, okay, Here's what we've been asked to do. This is how we need for you to help, right? So, I think that's really important. Um, it's just engaging now, um, if you can. Um, and then the other thing is, again, just just think before folks decide to just donate stuff. Um, you know, wait until they tell you what there's a need for, um, and then you know, then provide for that need. But you know, don't just Use it as an opportunity to just take a lot of stuff that, again, may may go unused or you know may not be needed at the time.
0: Right. I love that. Thank you. That's a
1: hard one, you know, because like even for us at the Red Cross, like we're, you know, ninety-seven percent of our workforce is volunteers across the country. Mm -hmm. right? Right. You know, the folks that were working at the Family Assistance Center in El Paso were volunteers from all over the country who. I deployed there to support that incident. And so, you know, that's why I just really do encourage folks to to engage early because we, for especially events like that, we don't use folks that we haven't really already vetted and really know who they are because of the sensitivities around that type of a response, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Very different than, you know, can mean it's impacted by a hurricane and you know, we just need help handing out food. Completely different skill set needed, right? So you know, that's why as much as we encourage folks just to kind of get involved. So again, as organizations, one can vet the
3: folks. Um because again
1: you see a lot of folks come forward that mean well but may not be the best suited to help with certain things. Um, and so, you know, allowing those organizations the time to kind of vet and really identify those folks is really important. So again, it's why I kind of just go back to engage now. Um, even if it's just, you know, an hour or two a month with an organization, right? I think one in this current environment, um, I have seen, I mean, I know we, I've really adapted and we do so much volunteer opportunities now virtually. I've seen that really grow across the entire nonprofit
2: mm-hmm. sphere.
1: So, you know, even even volunteering with organizations halfway across the country, right? Like you, Because of the way that everybody's working remotely, it allows really unique opportunities. So I would just truly encourage folks now more than ever to really tap into that because if you're tired of just sitting at home watching Netflix, you know, take an hour or two and start to utilize some time or learn about something that really interests you. Um, and when something does happen, you have the skill set, right? You have the end. So I think now presents a unique opportunity for folks to really tap into some volun- some volunteerism that they may not have had the time or the space for before. I think if anything, COVID has given us just a little bit more space in our lives that <laughs> we're not going at a hundred miles an hour, you know, folks may can not actually focus on some of that stuff. So I would just encourage folks to to really think about that and, and use what time they have now.
0: There's so much power in engagement. That's what I always tell my little sister. Um, I always encourage her to, to be engaged, to be informed um, because there's so much power and, and so much, uh, I just I don't even have a word for it. Um, you know, being engaged mm-hmm. with a community is just something lovely that really gets you, gives you the
1: perspective to so many things. I I think like just that, well, I was going to say, just that connection to your community, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's so important. And I think you're 100% right. Like that level of engagement that you have with your community it, it gives you just a little extra pep in your step. But yeah. also, I think it, it it allows for people to really see what life is like for others, right? Again, I think, you know, we tend to be a very myopic society, right? You know, I know what I know. Um, yeah. I know what my life experience is. But it, it's kind of that, that opportunity to engage to be with other organizations or to affiliate with other organizations or volunteer or work for whatever it may be Mm -hmm. that serve a demographic different than yours is such an eye-opening thing.
2: A hundred percent. When you
1: see that, you know, there are people that live, you know, that, that, you know, kids don't know when they're going to get their next meal. Right. Right. You know, So I think it also just does so much to just elevate your social conscience about what life is really like, really understanding that this world is a big world and there's a lot of different things and a lot of different thoughts and ways of life. And it just, I'm with you. Like, I think that that level of community engagement is huge. And I think it just, it also just allows for you to have that much more pride in your community
2: Mm -hmm.
1: because you're seeing all these other great folks out there that are working tirelessly for pennies on the dollar for a lot of them to really meet the needs of all the folks out there, um, in the community. So, you know, I'm a huge proponent for community engagement. I, I've, I've moved a lot, um, through the course of my career. And I, I will tell you that probably some of the most unhappiest times that I've ever been when I've lived in the community is when I wasn't engaged, when I was just basically Go to work, come home, you know, had my little friends, but like wasn't truly engaged in the community. But as soon as I started to do something, whether it was volunteer, get on a board, do whatever, and really start to feel like I was a part of that community, um,
3: that's or really something when, bigger. Correct. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, completely, completely agree, 100 percent that that engagement is so important.
0: Yes, yes. I love this conversation, Ryan. I'm so sad that it's coming to an end. (laughs) But my last question would be, and and, um, I always ask this question, um, what would be a message of hope that you would love to give to our community
3: members? You know, I think my message of hope is really just
1: continue to take it one day at a time right there's going to be good days there's going to be bad days things are going to happen you're going to feel setbacks but tomorrow is always a new day and you know really just try to keep as much as you can focus on one foot in front of the other but also i think more importantly than that is know that you are not alone right knowing that you have resources knowing that there are people who want nothing more than to support those folks that need whatever support they need to get to that next step. Um, and you know, it doesn't make you less than to ask for help. Um, all you need to do is just say, Hey, I need a little extra help today to get me through this. There'll be a ton of people surround you to get you to the next step. So, you know, I think that's really my message. And I think that's really just, Honestly, how to live life, right, is just focus on the next day, on the next day, Um, and knowing that, you know, there are going to be setbacks, and you don't have to feel good every day. It's okay. (laughs) Um, I think that's the other thing is really just when you have a bad day, it's okay to have a bad day, you know? Um, Nothing wrong with that. But knowing that tomorrow is a new day, you have a great opportunity to... (laughs) Make it what it is and and really just keep focusing on on what's next and just know that you're not alone and really, if you need it, pick up the phone, text, call, whatever you need to do. Um, Resources are always there to support folks going through whatever they're going through.
0: A hundred percent. Well, Ryan, thank you so much. You have no idea how much I enjoyed this conversation. I'm sure folks out there listening did too. I cannot thank you enough for for everything, all the help that you've given us. So thank you so much for this opportunity.
1: Well, thank you guys. I, you know, I, uh, I hate that, you know, just the way that things have been over the past year that I've, I haven't been able to be out there in person. I was really looking forward to being out there this past August and sharing kind of the one year commemoration with you all. And, um, you know, El Paso has a special place in my heart. Um, and so anything I can continue to do to support you all and really just, uh, the community, I'm, I'm happy to do it. And, um, hopefully soon I'll, uh, I'll be actually able to see you all in person.
0: We hope so too. <laughs> we really do. We we also have a place in, for you in our hearts, right? And we really do. So again, thank you so much.
1: All right. Take care. Thanks, everyone.
0: Thank you so much for listening today. We hope this content serves you and your loved ones as well. If you enjoyed our podcast, please do not forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at El Paso United FRC. To learn more about our commitment to the community's long term recovery,
3: please join us on the next episode.